Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the world-famous Cheeky Jaguar Radio broadcast, coast-to-coast, and motor-to-motor on TuneIn, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. And we are going to go to Pitesman. Get him in here. Hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> good. How are you? Pretty good, actually. It's been a uh, interesting uh, day, so uh, I, I apologize that we've just gotten to you, my friend. But uh, no worries. We I thought got... I might have had the time wrong. So no, 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 I'm no. Glad we're connected. We're good. We're good. We've got uh, JP with us today. He joins us live here on our big program, and uh, thebuildframework.com is the official website. Also, jphighperformancecoach.com, and uh, John Pites with us today certified high performance coach creator of the build framework and uh the book the build framework and um how to have more energy for 2019 beyond and of course uh as we enter the new year with profound goals and ambitions ready to tackle all those resolutions we have made it is essential to understand the importance of managing our energy for if we don't understand how to address this important area of life then we won't have the ability to get anything done and of course jonathan meisman with us today certified high performance coach professional speaker, meditation teacher, author, creator of the Build Framework, and he's back with us today to talk about this important topic in much more detail and to give us some specific strategies to help us understand how to manage our energy more effectively. And um, when we talk about energy, what are the key elements we need to understand, John? Yeah, well, it's interesting because a lot of people just think that it's about getting energy, right? And, and you know, like drinking that cup of coffee or popping whatever pill they need to kind of keep going, right? And really, the, the key thing to understand when you don't have enough energy is it's kind of like a power plant, right? We need to learn how to not try to get it from somewhere else, but how to generate energy. And that's a yes. really huge difference. And, and when you can do that, then you are the power plant, right? And when you're the power plant, that, that's what the power plant does, right? It generates energy. It doesn't have to get it from other places. So that's one key, key aspect that's really important to understand about energy. And the other thing is that we can't forget the other side of managing energy. And that is sometimes we have too much energy in our system. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, if you think about there's kind of different labels out there like anxiety, right, or stress. I mean, a lot of times this is because the electricity basically, which is the energy in our body, is just too much. It's just in there and it's shaking around and we don't have tools and techniques to actually be able to manage that. So the key elements, Jiggy, and all the listeners out there to really understand is really that you have to look at both of these areas of how to get energy, right, by generating it, right, and understanding that you're able to generate it when you don't have enough. And then the other side, the other element, which is what to do when you're feeling a little bit too stressed or you have too much energy or you have that anxiety or that pressure that's just building up. And you really have to understand that those are both essential elements to understanding managing your energy. We've got Jonathan Bites with us today. JP joins us here on our broadcast, and uh, it is it is definitely a uh, a great day to be talking with him. Now, um, what else do you have for us in in this section, my friend? Yeah, well, it's just really good to not only understand the elements, right? Especially, I mean, here's here's the deal about energy. <laughs> if you don't have it, you can't get anything done, right? We talked the other time we were, we were on air about clarity and making sure you, you know where you're going and how you want to show up and all that stuff. But if you don't have energy and you're not managing it right, then you can't show up, <laughs> right? And you can't get to where you're going. So it's so important to really understand this and not just understand it conceptually, but actually to have practices that you can actually do for all of these things that we're talking about. So, you know, if you'd like, I can share with your listeners some actual exercises that are really simple for both generating energy and also how to kind of manage their energy if they feel like they have too much stress or anxiety in their lives. Does that sound like a Go good Go ahead plan? and jump in there, my friend. Give it to us. <laughs> 
All right. Well, and again, and I'll say this with a disclaimer, obviously, that, you know, check with your medical provider if you're not used to exercise or anything like that. You know, obviously, I'm not a, a doctor and, and, and instructing you to do specific things. But the whole concept here is to have tools and techniques and practices that allow you to generate that energy. And more important than, you know, the actual exercise, Jiggy, is, is making sure that you have something that works for you, right? But one, yeah. one that works for a lot of people that is really simple is just breath clapping, right? And, and what does that mean? That, that, that literally is opening up your hands. You know, we're not in video here, so I can't show you, but people can figure this out. You basically you stand up and you open your hands wide with your chest and then you clap in front of you and you're opening your chest up and you're clapping and breathing in and out each time you do that. Now, sounds kind of silly and looks, you know, interesting if you're doing that in the hallway, but the point is, like, quite literally, it gets movement happening in your body. It gets you to actually pump oxygen more, and it actually gets you feeling more energized and more alive. And it's a very simple thing to do. You just stand up, you just open your you know arms up, and you clap in front of you. You do that about 20 times, and you breathe in and out each time, and you're clapping. And if you want to get really pumped up, you can clap five times at the end and, and shout, I'm ready, <laughs> right? And just kind of pump yourself up. Because as silly as that sounds, the more we actually do these physical things, things, the more we actually revive that energy flow and that electricity that's within our body. You know, we can think about, oh, I wish I was a little more energized now. I'm kind of, you know, down. Well, you know, whenever you're thinking that, stand up. <laughs> Do the breath clapping. There's another one called, you know, breath scaling, which is breathing in and out slowly, really deeply in the diaphragm, and then you just start to increase the pace. And you want to be careful, you know, you're not hyperventilating here, but you want to just breathe in and out faster and faster and harder and make it really kind of powerful, and then you scale it back down. So you breathe in, you breathe out. You know, if you don't want to do the breathing thing, you can just march in place. You can raise your knees up if you're sitting in a chair. You can circle your arms around, right? I mean, the point is get physical. The point is do something that works for you and stop just thinking about it and realize that once you start doing this stuff, again, it's experiential. You will actually raise the level of energy that you have, and it's so much better than reaching for that caffeine or reaching for something else that's going to try to stimulate energy movement just to get up and move. And the other thing that's really important about generating energy, too, is to, to do that consistently like take a break every every 50 minutes or so if you can it's good to get out of your chair sitting on your butt right and just actually get up and move around and walk around get outside get some fresh air again some common sense but it's not really common practice a lot of times so those are a couple ways you can generate energy do you get any questions on that before we move into how to deal with excess energy well no let, 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 let's keep going because we've got a limited amount of time here before my next guest calls me and i don't want to don't want to uh, cut you off so let's go jump in there my sure friend. absolutely well let me just quickly then go over what to do when you have too much energy in you. So, and, and what I'm talking about here is when you're feeling really stressed out. You might be going to a meeting. You might be, you know, stressed out with the family at home or, or just feeling that anxiety kind of starting to rise. And really, the simple thing is meditation, right? And there's a great, great meditation out there um, called the Release Meditation. You can Google it. It's Brendan Bouchard, who, you know, I'm certified through a certified high-performance coaching program with Brendan. And it's called Brendan Bouchard Release Meditation. That, that's one, you can Google that, and you basically just breathe in and out, repeat the word release, but it's out there on YouTube, and he walks people through it. Millions of views are out there, and that, that again, is just one technique, but do what works for you, whether it's the release meditation or just feeling your breath, calming down, closing your eyes, feeling instead of thinking, and just let all of that tension slip away. You can shake your body, too, kind of just shake that extra energy out. Again, find what works for you to get rid of that excess energy and do it when the need arises. That's the main thing, and that's the main point, and that's what we're talking about here today, Jiggy, with both generating energy and then dealing with the too much energy you might have at times. So I hope that's helpful getting into 2019 for all of your listeners, because if, again, you don't have energy and you're not managing it right, then you're not going to go towards your dreams, goals, and desires in the most effective manner. Yes, indeed. Well, John, before we let you go, I, uh, how do we get a hold of you online? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, you can go to thebuildframework.com, which is all about the Build Framework, or jphighperformancecoach.com, which has information about my coaching and other services as well. Fantastic. Well, John, I will talk to you next week. Thank you, my man. All right. Thank you, Jiggy. Appreciate it. There he goes, Jonathan Peitzman. 
Okay, we are going to go to our next guest. We're going to call up the great Gnome Rogers. And get him in here and then we'll get on the zone. Hello, Norm. It's James Lowe calling you for your radio interview. How are you, sir? I'm fine. <coughs> Good well. Let me get uh, Don Mazella in here, our our co-host, and uh, we will chat about the book and uh, talk a little bit about some of the different things going on with the uh, with the book Dumb Energy. And uh, Don Mazella is going to join us here in just a few moments, and. Uh, as soon as he joins us, we will uh, get things going here. Thanks for joining us here on our big broadcast, iHeartRadio. Also, AMFM247.com. Tune in, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. And, of course, uh, find us at JiggyJaguar.com. And you can pick up Norm's book, uh, Dumb Energy, a Critique of Wind and Solar Energy. It's available on Amazon. And um, let's t- Don, can you hear me, my friend? Now I can. There we go. And uh, we have got with us today Norman Rogers. He is a retired physicist and author of Dumb Energy, a Critique of Wind and Solar Energy. And um, Norm, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, why wind and solar energy is one of mankind's dumbest inventions. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, uh, wind and solar are what's known as erratic energy. It comes and goes when it feels like it. You know, you can't count on it. So whenever you have wind and solar, you have a backup plant somewhere so that when the wind fades or the sun goes down, the backup plant takes over. So you don't just have wind, a wind plant. You have a wind plant and a backup plant. So you always have to build two plants uh, in, in order to have it work at all. So the question comes, why bother with the wind and solar? Just run off the backup plant. Don, what 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 do you make of uh, wind and solar energy? <laughs> you know, I've I've been uh, perplexed by it from the first time I saw it more than forty <laughs> years ago, and uh, you know the the the, the uh, uh, liberals uh, tell me that 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 it's the uh, uh, end all be all answer to all of our problems in terms of pollution. Yet I just saw something in the Wall Street Journal that said in New York State alone, if they wanted to substitute alternative powers with wind and and sun power, they would take more uh, plants than in the entire United States. Uh, Just something I happened to read yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Are you saying then that uh, it's a fool's errand? Yeah, it's very foolish. Uh... Your utility scale wind and solar is subsidized to 70%. So, you know, the taxpayers and the electricity consumers are paying for it. There's really no point to it at all. It's not well, even an effective way of reducing CO2, CO2 emissions. Well, we know off of Hyannisport when they wanted to put the uh, wind. Uh, Wind power out the, out there. The uh, all the liberals that went to Hyannisport, including uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, didn't want it. It's not in my backyard. Uh, yeah, well, most people who live near it don't want it. It's not. It's ugly. It makes funny noises. Um, the offshore wind power is very very expensive because you have to anchor to the bottom of the ocean, and. Uh, the wind is better, but not enough to compensate for the great expense of trying to put these things out in the ocean. Well, in New Jersey here, we've just authorized, or about to authorize, the first wind <coughs> offshore wind uh, wind farms. Uh, and, and you're saying, in effect, they're in boondoggle? Pardon? In effect, they are a boondoggle? Because if I, I yeah. read the... Yeah, they're totally a boondoggle. The, the, there's just no point to it. The electricity from offshore wind is about three times as expensive as electricity from onshore wind, and it's all subsidized. So really, if you want to have electricity, we should be sticking with the 
the fossil fuels or nuclear. Uh, well, well, what do you say to these people that say fossil fuels, fuels in the end are bad for the environment? Well, that's highly debatable. Uh, the The whole global warming thing is based on computer projections, and the data from the Earth is the Earth has only been warming one quarter as fast as the computer projections claim it should be warming. And the carbon dioxide, by the way, is uh, pretty good for plants. It makes plants grow better and faster. It's greening the deserts. Uh, the whole global warming thing just is not panning out. So. Uh, you know, it's the environment is not really an issue. But if you did, if you really believe in global warming, there is a solution. That solution is nuclear, because nuclear puts out no CO2 at all, and nuclear is very reliable. It works at night. <laughs> so, uh, if if people really believe in global warming, they should be believing in nuclear. And some of the biggest uh, promoters of global warming, like Dr. James Hansen, uh, are fans of nuclear energy. Yeah, well, we're, we're uh, mothballing our, here in New Jersey, we're mothballing our nuclear plant, our one remaining nuclear plant. Uh, I don't understand it, but uh, I agree with you. you uh, uh, by the way, you use the term global warming. Uh, uh, I, I understand that the new word is global change rather than warming. Because the other... Yeah. Well, because they had to, they actually changed it from global warming to climate change, and the reason is that the globe wasn't warming, <laughs> so they had to come up with something uh, that be, be more plausible. Well, uh, you know, you happen to be on a show. I think that uh, with a bunch of skeptics when it comes to this whole issue, but if you go back in history and look at the. Uh, uh, look at the this, this earth has gone through a whole uh, series of climate changes over time do you think that's uh, uh, what's happening today oh sure uh, you know there, there was a time about 500 years ago called the little ice age it was very cold uh, in Europe They in London they were ice skating on the Thames River uh, and we've been uh, slowly warming ever since that little ice age and there are periodic cycles when the Earth warms and cools. And there are, of course, big ice ages and things like that that happen, too. Remember, it was only 10,000 years ago that the ice age ended. Yeah, well, some people say it hasn't. You know, I saw a very interesting uh, uh, show the other day that uh, how uh, the ice had edged uh, two parallel lines, which uh, explains why Stonehenge what was created because those two lines uh, intersect with the Stonehenge and then to the uh, winter solstice. I, I only bring that up because uh, uh, I really can't ask you that much because we all, uh, I, I think Jiggy agrees with me, we all have this skeptical vision of what the, the, uh, 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 the climate change is doing. But what is your book all about and um, what do you say in your book that we should know? Well, um, I say that um, the wind and solar is just an absolute and total waste of money. I say that we should be very skeptical about uh, these predictions of global warming. Um, there's an interesting thing that goes on in science. If you're a, a science group or a scientist, if you predict some coming disaster, it gives you a lot of attention and indirectly a lot of money coming from Washington. So the scientists are inclined to predict disasters. They, they, they of course, they had the the um, <laughs> the uh, acid rain disaster in the 70s and 80s, which never panned out. We even had global cooling back in the 60s. Uh, we had DDT. Uh, so there's a great impetus for financial reasons to predict disasters. Um, President Eisenhower, when he gave his farewell speech back in 1961, that's a speech where he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. But he said something else in that speech that's very relevant for today. He said, beware of the scientific-technological complex. He was very concerned because more and more science was supported from federal money. Uh, 
And he felt that if the science was supported by federal money, the scientists would start to try to influence federal policy and even distort the science so as to increase the flow of money from Washington. And that really has happened, uh, and it's very unfortunate. Uh, when you hear these people tell you that 97% of scientists agree, it's just not true. I, you know, there, there are hundreds, in fact, thousands of scientists who don't go on with global warming. I always thought no two scientists agreed on anything. Uh, <laughs> well, um, they, they probably agree pretty well on some things, like the law of gravity. Um, um, didn't you just, uh, it's just in today's paper that a group of scientists in India say that uh, Newton was wrong and in, uh, in his laws of gravity. It just came across the wire. <laughs> well, it, it's true that uh, Newton's, uh, let's say that Newton's laws have been refined. And, and Einstein did that. He found that uh, Newton's laws were not exactly correct and some very small adjustments uh, are needed, which they noticed when the orbit of the planet Mercury wasn't behaving quite the way they thought it was supposed to, according to Newton's laws. I've been fascinated by the fact of how right um, science fiction writers were in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s in predicting what the world would become. Uh, would you care to comment on that? I know it's off to your subject, but uh, you sound like a, a man that's widely read. Yeah, sure. I, I I was a fan of science fiction when I was a kid, and uh, they they were right about many things. They were also wrong about things. I remember uh, a, a science fiction uh, book about Mars, uh, where they people were supposedly had colonized Mars, and they were ice skating on the canals of Mars, but, you know, once they got uh, some uh, some uh, space vehicles close enough to Mars to take good pictures, they found there were no canals on Mars. The canals on Mars were something that came out of the imagination of an astronomer named Percival Lowell back around 1910. Mm. Much to our chagrin, we were all, we all always hoping to find some neighbors out there. Well, um... It might not be so pleasant, <laughs> according to a lot of science fiction. <laughs> oh. yeah, uh, uh, you know, you, you, know uh, you brought up about um, uh, Eisenhower and his speech, which um, uh, I haven't heard anybody quote in many, many years, but uh, for a long time, that speech had an impact on, on America, particularly the science, science military. But uh, um, where do you think science is going today? Well, uh, I, I, I hope that it, that it changes direction a bit. Uh, it, it really has become very bureaucratic, very money-oriented, and the kind of the pure scientific types that maybe we had 40 or 50 years ago, uh, there's not so many of them anymore. Uh, the reason is the, the scientists are mostly employed in big bureaucratic organizations. And the leaders of the, these organizations, their job is to bring in money. So there's a tendency to uh, promote the type of science that's more sensational or will attract money and, and uh, to, to let the, maybe the more interesting and, and sincere science go by the wayside. That's, that's certainly what's happened in the global warming areas. Uh, you know, I've gone to many scientific conferences uh, where global warming was a topic, and it's really quite disgusting. It's it's like uh, everybody has to conform, and those who don't conform are in big trouble. The biggest thing you can do in science, it's, uh, the biggest crime you can commit, is getting in the way of the money. But isn't science the challenge to find uh, out um, what we don't know? That's the theory. Uh, the, the practice is uh, not always uh, um, not always like that. Well, um, can I ask what your field of specialty is and how you, you got into writing this book? Yeah, I was I was uh, I, I, in college. I studied physics, 
and I was uh, in the field of high energy physics. But uh, I ended up being a uh, software engineer and a hardware engineer working on computers. And uh, I, I later started my own company, and that, that was what most of my career was. After I retired, I got interested in this global warming question and took that up as a, sort of a hobby. That's the, and, and writing the book is a natural consequence of that. Uh, but the book is not really about global warming, although it does have one chapter in global warming. It's more about energy because the the global warming is kind of a morass. You know, there's no clear answers. But uh, in the energy field, uh, it, it is pretty straightforward engineering. And it's really quite shocking that uh, people keep pursuing this wind and solar, which, which is totally subsidized by the government and the electric companies. You know, I remember in 1972 when we had the oil crisis, they said that no more oil could be discovered in the world. Uh, yeah, that's a good example of how wrong science can be, isn't it? <laughs> One of the favorite catastrophe stories that all these people put out is that we're running out of this, we're running out of that. Uh, it always uh, always uh, doesn't work that way because people find substitutes or they find new resources. And, of course, we've had a terrific revolution with uh, fracking, hydraulic fracturing of rocks where we've actually doubled our production of energy in the United States and we're very close to energy independent. All that happened in 10 years. Mm. Well, again, do you uh, chalk it up to science or to the ability of uh, capital to finance uh, ways of getting things done? Well, it's both, isn't it? it, it, it yeah, the money has to be there uh, to implement new ideas, but I think most of these ideas are, are thought up by creative people who uh, maybe think differently, to use Apple's slogan. <laughs> uh, so it, it's both. And uh, the great thing about the United States is that we have uh, entrepreneurs who uh, put out money or who are willing to risk their money uh, on, on uh, new ideas. And we have people who... Uh, uh, are thinking up these new ideas and new way of doing things. Well, you know, I just saw another article that said uh, last year was the first year that we actually reduced our total output of carbon uh, emissions in the United States. Uh, what do you ascribe that to? It it's, uh, comes from substituting natural gas for coal. Uh, when you burn natural gas, it puts out a lot, oh, about half as much carbon as getting the same amount of energy from coal. That's because natural gas has got a lot of hydrogen in it and less carbon, whereas coal is intensively carbon. Uh, so the reason we've been substituting natural gas for coal is two reasons. One is that the natural gas has become extremely cheap due to the fracking. Another is that the capital cost of a generating plant is uh, less for natural gas. Uh, now, coal is a good fuel, and uh, it, it is a clean fuel. If, in a modern plant, it doesn't really put a lot of junk out of the smokestack. Um, and coal has one big advantage over natural gas. That is that uh, natural gas is coming in in a pipeline, and if the pipeline fails for some reason, your power fails. Whereas coal, they have a big yard full of a pile of coal, and they can usually go for 30 days or more without any new supply. Uh, we may be going overboard on the natural gas for electricity at this point. Well, um, there's another article that appeared today that said um, uh, our electrical grid system has been attacked and that uh, its vulnerability has been uh, demonstrated. Uh, I've, I've heard stories about that. What do you say to that? Well, it, it, it is a big danger. Uh, it's, it's vulnerable in a number of ways. One, of course, is hacking. Uh, it is possible to, by hacking, by messing with computer controls, to actually blow up components of the electric grid, like generators or transformers. 
another uh, form of attack is uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse. Now, there are two ways you can get electromagne- electromagnetic pulse. One is natural. It's from uh, an eruption on the sun. And the other is uh, by a, a kind of a military attack where you detonate a nuclear weapon in the outer space and, uh, and it creates an electromagnetic pulse on the surface of the Earth. Uh, now, we have about 2,000 very large transformers in our electric grid. These are the transformers that uh, raise the voltage very high to be able to transmit the power over long power lines and to bring that voltage out of the long power line back down to more usable levels. Those transformers uh, are very big. They might be as big as a house. They actually are not really manufactured in the United States anymore. You have to order them from overseas. It takes uh, maybe a year or two years to get one. And they're subject to being destroyed by electromagnetic pulse. There are devices to protect the transformers, but we're not really doing anything about it. So, yeah, the, the power grid is vulnerable. Uh, it's vulnerable to attack. And it's also a natural form of attack for some of our weaker enemies, like, say, North Korea or Iran, uh, where a, a small power that doesn't have much military strength could create a devastating attack by blowing up the electrical grid with an electromagnetic pulse. Would that put us back into the uh, 19th century, as someone said to recently, or will we recover fairly quickly? Well, if they really bring the grid down for a long period of time, uh, it's probably put us back worse than the 19th century, because without electricity, we're really screwed. Uh, We're so dependent on it. the question is, how would we distribute food? How would we manufacture it? How would we distribute the fuel for automobiles, things like that? It's not that there's a shortage of food. There's enough corn and soybeans sitting in, in uh, big big uh, hoppers in the Midwest to feed the whole country for five years. We, we have so much agricultural production, but how would you convert that into uh, edible food, and how would you ship it around the country if we... Had that, that crash. We have no plans for this. <laughs> hmm. and, you, know, you, you know, news is uh, the essence of news is conflict, and we seem to be always talking about it, these uh, various things uh, that could go wrong, and some some of them do. But um, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I'm optimistic. I think whether you're optimistic or pessimistic is kind of a more of a mental state than it is a consequence of some kind of objective analysis of the world. <laughs> I think I think that we'll pull through, even if someone did destroy the electric grid. I have a lot of confidence that that we would improvise and figure out a way to survive and get things back into order. Uh, why don't we hear more of, 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 about people, things like that, from people like you? Well, you know, I, th- there is a group that uh, called the the Foundation for uh, Robust Societies in New Hampshire that, that works on this electric grid problem. I, I think that uh, a lot of our mental mental vision is swamped out by all this global warming, uh, energy, this um, green energy stuff. Which, which is really a waste of time. And as a consequence, we don't, uh, there's not enough mental bandwidth available for thinking about these other things that are very serious problems. Well, what's the name of your book again for our audience? I'd like to write it down for myself. It's Dumb Energy. Dumb Energy, a critique of wind and solar energy. I have a website that's uh, dumbenergy.com where you can... Uh, get links to, to Amazon for ordering the book. Hmm. Um, do you think they'll ever figure a way of, of doing broadcast powering? Broadcast power? Well, I, I, I understand it's theoretically possible using microwaves. You know, there are proposals to beam microwaves down from orbit, but uh, I suspect that uh, 
power lines are a lot better than broadcast power for most instances. You know, I'm sure there are niche niche areas where broadcast power might be good, but uh, the problem with the the proposals for beaming microwaves down from space is the antennas down on the ground have to be square miles. You know, because the the density of power in the beam is pretty low. It's sort of like collecting solar energy, except you'd be collecting microwaves. I, I remember years ago, um, someone said, uh, we'll really have solar energy when the electrical companies figure a way of uh, um, putting their meter on it. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about electrical companies, it's an interesting item that not everyone realizes. Of course, electric utilities are very heavily regulated. And electric utilities are are only too happy to build useless wind and solar plants. They know they're useless, but they're, they're, the amount of profit that they're allowed by the Public Utilities Commission depends on how much uh, capital investment they have. So the more things they can build that are approved for going into their rate base, the more money they make. And that's why you won't find a uh, electric utility complaining about building too many power plants or building power plants that don't work that well. Uh, well, let me ask you this question. Um, uh, there now is companies that um, sell electricity, and there are companies that produce electricity. And, uh, I get three or four calls a day from someone saying that I should decouple myself from PSE and G and go with them and that I'll get a lower rate. And then uh, six months later, I find out I'm screwed because they, they raised the race totally. Um, I, uh, do you think that that's a good idea, the way they've decoupled the two? No, I, I don't. Uh, that's not in every state. Some states have that and some states don't. Uh, and the states that have decoupled them, they, they um, make the electric utility mainly work on distributing the electricity, and uh, the power plants are supposed to be independent, and uh, and there's, they buy electricity by an auction. Uh, and the theory is you're going to save some money, but it really just comes down to disorganization, and it negatively affects robustness uh, because it's dividing responsibility for the electric grid. So uh, I, I think that, that approach has been a failure, and we'd be better off sticking with the original regulated utility model. Because remember, the cost of electricity is one thing. It's... it's Okay, it's important, but much more important than the cost of electricity is having the electricity because, my God, if you have a long-term blackout, it's going to cost you more than you'd ever dreamed. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I covered the New York blackout of, uh, I guess it was 67, <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, how the bewilderment of the people when they lost uh, power. Uh, and it stopped just at the Hudson River, and the difference between the two two is amazing. Um, do you think a similar thing? Um, um, but there was no rioting. There was uh, essentially people, uh, if I, well, I know that was the case, basically stayed in their homes. And uh, what, what happened uh, nine months later, there was a surge in uh, births. But... Um, uh, do you think if it happened today, we would have the same uh, civil obedience that we had then? Well, if you have a blackout that lasts for 24 hours or even two or three days, that's not that bad. There's a lot of lost energy, lost work there, but it's not that bad. What's, what would be the killer? And we've never had it happen except maybe in hurricane areas and small areas. Uh, if they have a blackout that lasts for months, then, then it becomes very serious because uh, all the backup generators will run out of diesel fuel, and it's problematic whether we've got the organization in place to provide more diesel fuel. You know, high-rises become useless if the elevators don't work. Do you think that the people will remain obedient to the law in, in those in a, in a situation like that? Well, I, I think uh, since we don't have any plan or, or 
we don't have a plan for the general population. There'd probably be some confusion at the beginning, but in the end, I think people would organize themselves to prevent looting and to keep some kind of order. Uh, but uh, it's, it, this remains to be tested. You know, we have had some uh, some bad riots in certain certain areas, but uh, I, I, I do think that people would uh, organize themselves. Where it gets really sticky is, you know, if the sewer plants fail, if the water fails. Uh, things can get pretty bad. I, I live in Las Vegas, and, uh, you know, we're, this is a desert. We don't have, uh, uh, we have a big lake of mead, and that's where the water comes from, and, and there's an elaborate system of pumps and, and uh, pipes and so forth that uh, are all powered by electricity. And the sewage is the same thing. The sewage uh, is a big system, and it has pumps in it, too. And, and if uh, the system fails, why... You may have sewage, raw sewage going out on the streets. You could have disease. There's a lot of problems. You have to. We should. We should have a plan for this, and we should have. Uh, there's a number of ways we could avoid this long-term blackout, uh, and, and the government's just not paying enough attention. And the utility, public, uh, the, the, the private utilities are hopeless. <laughs> frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because outside of my house right now, they are uh, replacing the uh, gas lines uh, in the, the town after a hundred years. They're, they're going to each house. Uh, they've done the streets. Now they're they're doing from the street to the houses. And watching these men work, you sit there, five guys watching one guy shovel a, 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 a shovel a hole I mean there were five guys standing around watching one guy work you know uh, well, yeah I know it's <laughs> uh, one of the problem of a regulated utility is that they uh, they don't have the same sense of economy that uh, other private companies have yeah for many years uh, electrical uh, utilities were considered Built out edge investments, always returning a certain percentage. Um, sure. The, when I was growing up, the utility bonds were, uh, uh, and utility stocks were the thing to buy. Not, not any longer, in your opinion? No, I think they're good. It depends on the state, probably. Uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't buy buy any California utilities, <laughs> given that, uh, <laughs> that they're supposedly about to bankrupt the Pacific Gas and Electric Company. But even when these companies go bankrupt, the stockholders lose their money, but they never go out of business. They can't be allowed to go out of business because we have to have electricity, right? Absolutely. And they are, in all for all intents and purposes, a monopoly. But we don't yeah, like to call them that. It's what you call a natural monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beth, could we talk about the California situation for a minute? Uh, I know it, uh, superficially, but it seems to me that they're holding uh, the, the kind of Pacific Gas and Electric responsible for the fires. Well, how are they doing that and why? Well, I, I guess maybe there's some suspicion that uh, a power line started the fire. Uh, and, of course, obviously PG&E has deep pockets, so it becomes a target for lawsuits. But I, I, I don't know uh, the details of that, whether that's actually going to come about, that uh, PG&E will be held responsible. But if they are held responsible, the only people who are going to get hurt are the stockholders and the bondholders. Uh, PG&E, probably just the stockholders, because PG&E has to keep going. They can't. They can't crush PG&E. The, the, even the state of California has to keep PG&E going. And the people who work at PG&E are the only ones who know how to keep it going. So they're not going to lose their jobs. The only people that are going to be hurt are the stockholders, and uh, maybe some lawyers will be vastly enriched. But. Uh, there's a lot of other people who are probably responsible for those fires besides PG&E. One of one of which, of course, is the state of California, which doesn't like to have logging done, and uh, which doesn't enforce uh, people 
taking proper precautions for fires around their houses, clearing the brush and this sort of thing. So uh, I think PG is going to be kind of a scapegoat if, if it actually turns out that way. Well, um, who, uh, in, in your opinion, is the scapegoat for this uh, rather chaotic picture of uh, uh, our energy situation today, if there is one? Well, I, I think it's the, uh, the the science establishment. I think they're only too willing to uh, let... It's the science establishment and the environmentalist groups, which are, are pushing these scare stories and uh, refuse to, to uh, listen to common sense, you know. And they push the scare stories because it's convenient for them. For the scientists, it brings in a lot of money, and it does for the environmental groups, too. So that, those are my first uh, first uh, evil people that I, I, I worry about. Uh, of course, our pol- we wish we wish that our politicians would uh, stand up for common sense, but that's that's probably asking too much. <laughs> well, you got the right pro- program if you want to expand on that. <laughs> um, uh, 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 but what, what, uh, having said all this, what are the things that you would do to uh, uh, make our se- situation less par- perilous? Well, I, I would turn off the the, uh, the the support for wind and solar. You know, it's, it's heavy federal subsidies. There's uh, heavy privileges in the federal tax code, and uh, there's, there's state laws that mandate the use of wind and solar. So I would just cut that off. We, we should just stop that. It's just a total waste of energy and time. That that would be a first step forward. And you believe, because uh, uh, given the various lobby of the, these various groups like the Sierra, that's not going to occur? Yeah, the Sierra Club loves wind and solar. Uh, but uh, if we let the Sierra Club run our national policy, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> well, they, they seem to have an opinion on everything. Yes, uh, <laughs> pretty much. The, the, you know, their ignorance is really boundless. I mean, it, 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 it's kind of shocking. They, you know, the president of the Sierra Club wrote a book about energy uh, that was so full of misstatements and and crazy ideas is almost be unbelievable. Uh, they are largely responsible for destroying the nuclear industry in the United States. Uh, we used to have a robust nuclear industry. Uh, we invented nuclear electric power in the United States, and now uh, almost no new reactors are being built. It's it's going great guns and overseas in South Korea and France and China and places like that. So the Sierra Club destroyed the nuclear industry, and now they're trying to destroy the coal industry. They have a, a whole program called Beyond Coal, and they go and picket coal plants and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's no, and, and they say, oh, coal is causing a medical disaster by pollution, but modern coal plants don't pollute. I've, I've been to uh, a modern coal plant in Arkansas, and believe me, you can't see anything bad coming out of the smokestack. It um, uh, has a wonderful set of pollution controls. So the Sierra Club, uh, they're always grasping for something that's sensational and scary. And uh, um, they get away with it. You know, I, I fully, I don't know if you noticed, heard some of these reports about the oceans getting filled up with plastic. Uh, which, which uh, as best I can figure out, are pretty much uh, false. But uh, I, I think that may be the next scare story, that the ocean's going to be polluted with plastic. Well, there was an article in the New York Times uh, uh, that uh, described this uh, uh, thousand square mile uh, area where all of this plastic has supposedly uh, congregated in the, I think it was the Pacific or the Atlantic, I'm sorry, I don't remember which ocean. And yeah. how, uh, As best I can figure, it's just absolutely untrue. If you could go to that place in the ocean, you wouldn't see anything. 
uh, if you took a sample of the water and uh, put some extreme tests on it, you might find a few particles of plastic. Um, but it's, it's just like most of these scare stories, there's some kernel of truth somewhere in the thing, and then you exaggerate it a hundred times, and you make some big scare story out of a minor problem. That's certainly the case with global warming. Well, they've done a very good job. I uh, was talking to some young people today, and it was like, um, uh, uh, well, not today, a few days ago, and it's like I was talking Swahili to them, and they certainly were speaking Swahili to me about all all of the dangers of uh, global uh, climate change. Um, but how do you how do you go about changing this uh, dialogue? Well, uh, of course, you can try to do it with facts, uh, and there are plenty of people doing that. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of facts out there. There are scientists who uh, uh, try to propagate facts and, and uh, have a more reasoned approach to the whole thing. Uh, I, th- I think one thing that works in our favor is that uh, people get tired of these stories where nothing really ever happens. So eventually uh, we're going to see... Uh, uh, Global, you know, global warming actually already died, and they changed it to climate change. And I, I think eventually it'll kind of fade away, and people just get tired of it, and and they'll go on to something else. Um, but I, it's hard to, um, given that the the people who are who are pushing it uh, have a big financial stake in it, and there are vast resources in terms of. Uh, you know, promoting propaganda uh, that um, it's hard to attack it frontally. Mm. Well, you know, just across my uh, computer just now came a headline, Cold War uh, uh, Games. U.S. is preparing to test the waters in in the icy Arctic. Uh, The fact that the uh, Arctic ice is breaking up. What do you say to that? uh, you know, in every discussion I've been in the last two years, they say, "But look, the ice is warming in the Antarctic, and uh, it's uh, and in the Arctic." What do you say to that? Well, um, okay, the the what they're usually referring to is the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean. That's uh, ice that uh, forms in the winter time, and a lot of it melts in the summertime. And that is, that's a regular cycle that's going on. Now, we only have a record of that going back uh, 20 years or so. That's from satellites where they count the number of squares that uh, have ice and not ice in them. Uh, and, you know, if you go back 10 years, they're saying the, the summer ice was going to be all gone um, in 10 years, but it, it hasn't. Um, the the Arctic has uh, got a volatile climate. It has warm spells and cold spells. Now, from 19 back in the 1920s uh, or 1930s, it was another warm spell in the Arctic. But at that time, we didn't have satellites looking down to see how much ice there is. But it's quite possible that back then there was even less ice than there is today. And it's possible that in another 10 years we'll go back into a cold spell and get cold again. In other words, you, you can't. You can't make projections uh, from from looking at a small slice of time. Uh, now, as far as uh, the Arctic ice, there was a period 6,000 years ago. It's called the Holocene Optimum. And in that period, uh, it was kind of a, a really warm time, probably considerably warmer than it is today. And it's quite probable the Arctic Ocean was ice-free uh, in the summer back then, and nothing really bad happened. The polar bears didn't die. Uh, the, the, one piece of evidence for that is that there's a researcher who uh, um, gathered driftwood from a beach in uh, on northern Greenland. It's a beach that is always always uh, blocked by ice year-round because the wind blows the ice up in the beach. But he found some driftwood there, and he said, well, how did that driftwood get there? And he took the driftwood and radiocarbon dated it to tell how old it was. And it turned out to be about 6,000 years ago. 
So that was pretty powerful evidence that the uh, ocean, the Arctic Ocean was ice free in the summer 6,000 years ago during this warm time. So all, all this is nothing alarming is going on, basically. Uh, it, it's just normal ups and downs of the climate. Uh, now, as far as sea level rise goes, to have, to have the sea level rise, you'd have to, changing the Arctic ice that's floating in the ocean doesn't change the sea level. You'd have to melt the mainly the Greenland ice cap because there's a lot of water in there. You're not going to melt the Antarctic ice cap. It's too cold down there. Uh, now, the Greenland ice cap is uh, the same problem. They've got a 10-year a slice of uh, how much ice is there. And it ha they have been losing some every year. At the rate they've been losing, it would take around 15,000 years to melt the whole thing. And at the rate they're losing it, the ocean is only going to rise maybe five or six inches a century. So it's not a big problem. Uh, it it's all a matter of going crazy with the computer projections and getting very alarmist at a short-term trend. Yeah, I have to tell you, you're one of the most uh, informed guess we've had in a long time thank you no matter what the subject is you have an answer um, i'm really glad <laughs> yes he is fantastic well thank you no you you make sense some of our guests don't make sense <laughs> um. <laughs> oh believe me we've 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 had some buttes on this show uh, uh norm <laughs> well, certainly certainly not our guest because uh I'm I'm learning a lot, and uh, uh, I hope you don't mind the questions. But Jiggy, you just uh, brings me on this program to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm really pleased that you're having me on. But, but, uh, let me ask you a, another question on 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 the scientists. A, a scientist is, uh, is taught to ask questions and then try to figure out the the answer, not the answer they want, but the answer that uh, most an seems to answer the question. What do you say to that? Well, <laughs> that's a big problem. It's called confirmation bias. That. Uh, you're looking for an answer before you've done the investigation, uh, and if you're looking for that answer, it's likely you'll find it. <laughs> your your mental processes will be subtly uh, distorted, and that's a big pro problem in science. A lot of scientific discoveries happen by accident, as we well know. People uh, uh, do something; they something turns out in an unexpected way, and. Mm. Uh, I always think of penicillin, but that's uh, uh, when you yes. people put that up. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. But um, do you think we'll be able to uh, answer some of the more vexing problems facing us today over time? Over time or on climate? Um, over time. Well, uh, some things are more amenable to, to finding the answers than others. So, for instance, I don't think we're going to have a, a really good handle on the climate anytime soon. It's just too complex. Uh, you know, maybe we'll cure cancer. Maybe we'll cure Alzheimer's. But um, it's, a, it's a gradual process, right? Well, people have said it's too late for me about curing on Alzheimer's, but that's a another story um, <laughs> but um, uh, in a few minutes uh, I, I don't know how much time will left but uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you um, another question there, there's the controversy about uh, the, can women make good scientists I know this is a, a kind of a, a dirty question to ask you but what do you feel about that well, uh, if I was employed by a university, this would be a very dangerous question to go into. Um, oh. There have been some very good women scientists. We think of Madame Curie. There, there are many very accomplished women scientists. Uh, it depends on the field. The women tend to be a little bit uh, more in, in uh, fields that are, uh, for instance, not, not many women are in engineering for some reason. But there are certainly women mathematicians, physicists, uh, and a lot of women in the uh, biological sciences. 
So, yeah, women, women can be very good scientists, and, and many are. Uh, but, but do you think they're kind of forced into those fields because men try to try to um, uh, herd up together uh, in, in a certain other fields? Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't think they're forced in those fields. I think it's, it's the feminine preference. I think, I think uh, you know, it's a mistake to think that if there aren't an equal number of, of say, men and women uh, electrical engineers, that it's an indication of uh, prejudice against women. Uh, if you look at veterinarians, for example, I, I know uh, I used to live in Davis, California, where the university has one of the foremost medical schools, uh, veterinary medicine schools. And uh, that school had 90% 90% women. The students were 90% women who go into veterinary veterinarian science. Uh, now, why is that? It's it's preference. It's personal preference. So uh, it, we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions that uh, women and men should be uh, equal in all respects and all have the same interests. It's just not the way it is. The same thing goes between ethnic groups. You know. We know that um, uh, Chinese and Japanese people are very much inclined towards uh, engineering, and uh, uh, whereas uh, some other ethnic groups uh, may be more interested in politics or science or some uh, some other type of science. So uh, it's, it's just I just think it's a mistake to uh, infer discrimination because different groups have different preferences. Well, uh, well, let me ask you this question: uh, Is it um, what makes it that um, Americans seem to be developing uh, applications and, and new ways into science um, at, a, at a fairly prodigious rate? Um, uh, you know, they said about uh, Frederick Jackson Turner said the the frontier explained the American. Character. What do you think explains the scientific uh, free for free for all that is American science? Well, <laughs> God, you're trying to make me have an answer for everything here. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I, I just have, I no, 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 please. I happen to think you're one of the most articulate people we've had on this program, and you, you, uh, I, I value your opinion. Well, we can take one interesting fact is that uh, before World War II, uh, Germany was the leader, the leader really in physics and in uh, a, a number of other fields, chemistry, for example. Uh, and after the war or during the war, first of all, a lot of the Jewish scientists uh, left Germany for obvious reasons and emigrated to the United States. I mean, that's that's how we got Einstein, right? Uh, so that's one factor that boosted uh, American science a lot, uh, in that uh, a lot of uh, scientists of all types uh, and other intellectuals left left Europe because of the war and came to the United States. And those those people mostly got positions in universities and uh, raised new generations of students who uh, became leader world leaders. Um, so. It's not not that uh, we have a, such a tremendous admiration for scientists. It's, it's uh, mainly that that uh, we have a lot of positions where people can do science, and uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in science. Um, and, and so that, that's about as best as I can say. We could easily lose our our position in science. Uh, if we have too much political correctness or we make it, uh, um, you know, do things like uh, force equality of different ethnic groups in scientific fields, that's just stupid. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, how much time do we have left, uh, Jiggy? We, we've got a couple minutes here. Um, uh, go ahead and uh, bring us up to speed on, on how the book is doing their norm and uh, – Tell us how we can get the book and get in touch with you. Sure. Well, uh, I've sold about 2,000 copies of the book in six months, which I'm pleased with. Uh, uh, I've got a few favorable reviews in the press. And 
I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that it's going to have some influence. It's really not a big money-making project. I'm not making enough money to make it be worth the time. Uh, the uh, the reaction, if you look in, in the Amazon reviews of the book, I've got about 70 reviews so far on Amazon, and uh, <laughs> the, the reviews are bipolar. You, you have either, I have about two-thirds of the people say the book is great, give me five stars. The other one third, give me one star and say the book is an outrage. It's uh, it's uh, nonsense and I'm a tool of the oil companies and stuff like that. So it's kind of uh, kind of a funny circumstances. Uh, the general the, the general way that the people who are promoters of global warming treat people who are skeptics is they say they they impugn their um, their authenticity by saying that they're uh, being paid by oil companies or they're, they're um, uh, you know backward in some way or other or they're, or they're too Republican or whatever it may be uh, and that's that's something we have to deal with uh, that we have this this group of true believers that have closed minds and uh, have adopted a certain set of beliefs and they're not going to change Oof. Well, if, if the book is half as good as what you said on a program, uh, uh, it's got to be a great book. Yes. Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a straightforward analysis, and uh, I've tried to make it uh, accessible to everyone. Um, and and um, the more technical stuff I put into an appendix. So I, I, I hope it uh, just tells the story in a straightforward manner. Well, I, I for one am going to go. Norm, your last name again. Because... My last name? Yeah. Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear it in the beginning. I was just coming on the program. Because uh, yeah. I'm going to go out and buy the book. Okay, that's great. Now, uh, now uh, go ahead, Norm. Go ahead. Well, if, uh, if you Google my name, Norman Rogers, of course, you'll get plenty of uh, uh, plenty of things on the first page of Google uh, referring to the book and different articles I've written. Well, uh, Don, before we let you go, uh, how do we pick up your books and uh, keep up with you and everything? Oh, well, uh, my books are not half as important as what Norm is outlining, but uh, 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 the... The National Robotics Education Foundation is our fa foundation. DonMazzella.com is my website. And uh, uh, Recalculating Radio is my uh, radio show. And uh, those are the places you can learn about me. And uh, 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 thanks to you, Jiggy. We keep selling books, so thank you. Well, good stuff. Well, uh, we appreciate it, Norman. Thanks for being on with us, and uh, we will talk to you next week, Don. And, uh, Norm, we definitely will talk to you down the road, my friend. Have yourself a, a wonderful weekend. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. There they go, Don Mazzella and Norman Rogers.